and I, I love this, 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 and like what you guys are doing and where the world is going right now with, with biotechnology and biomarkers is, you know, um, we, there's stuff going on beneath the surface that we're not aware of. And for most people, I think the vast majority of people, if you understand and you have objective data, like the police officers I ta- told you about, right. say they don't have, they don't think they're stressed at all. And we show them the data, right. they change their behavior because I say, this is, you know, you, your body is not handling it well now in five to 10 years, uh, you know, all these problems will come to a head. Your body will send you a rude message, right. whether it's hypertension, whether it's, you're going to be definitely grinding your teeth at night, whether it's, you know, all of a sudden migraines that have no explanation, of course, Chronic, you know, uh, unregulated stress can lead to problems like heart disease, can lead to uh, cancer, can reduce your immunity, can affect your sleep. And of course, your sleep affects all these. Yeah. And I actually have a YouTube channel where I um, just started over the pandemic where I go over basically these things I'm talking about. Uh, I have a number of them on being productive and motivated. But the last uh, six months or so, I've been producing videos on sleep. What's the name of the channel? Oh, it's uh, Friesen Performance with Dr. Chris Friesen. And I have, uh, there'll be 20 videos specifically on sleep. I thought I was going to make three. And then I realized this is too much details and I don't want to make a long video. So they're three minutes to 12 minutes at the maximum. And I make these short videos that go over, first of all, what are the negative uh, psychological consequences of poor sleep? There's one video. Right. What are the negative health consequences or physiological consequences of poor sleep? There's a second sure. video. And what are the neurological consequences? All to show the people the reality of what happens when we don't take this seriously. So it's to motivate people to make a change. And then I go through what I call the three major causes of sleep disruption that are non-clinical. So I'm not including sleep apnea and restless leg syndrome. The three major causes, as most people know, but our phys- our sorry, circadian rhythm disruption. Uh, number two is what I call physiological activation, right. which is our physiology being worked up, whether it's exercising too close to bed, caffeine in our system, stressful conversations. All these activate the sympathetic nervous system when we actually need that to come down, which is our gas pedal. We need our brake to turn on, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest, digest, relax system in the evenings. We want cortisol to come down. Uh, and then the last one, the, these are the videos I'm just releasing now, mm-hmm. is cognitive overactivation, which is what everyone complains of when they say they have sleep problems. They say, I can't turn my mind off. I'm lying down and I can't turn my mind off. That's part of it. And I think for some people, that's purely the issue. But if you have circadian rhythm disruption by waking up at different times, being exposed to blue light and bright light, not getting bright light in the mornings, you're going to have some circadian rhythm disruption and your body's not ready for sleep and therefore you lie down and you're going to hear the chatter in your mind. And other people, it's a physiological activation. They're activated physically. And of course, you lie down and your mind's just doing what it normally does. And other people, uh, is the mind is the issue that they cannot turn their mind off. They get hooked or wrapped up by thoughts. And uh, there are a whole bunch of strategies that it's beyond simple sleep hygiene, which I think is just the absolute basics. What supplements are helpful? What neurological strategies? Heart rate variability biofeedback helps with physiological activation. So I go over these in short videos to help people understand. Because once your sleep is done and you're not sleeping well, if if your sleep is crap, you are going to be performing not well in your life. And of course, we have a delayed response. You might notice not functioning very well the next day. But it's again, in five to 10 years, when your body actually, you start to see the remnants of diseases coming out. I'll give you a quick example. One thing we know for sure, and I, and I talk about this in one of the videos, is when we are somewhat sleep deprived, so sleeping like one hour or only one hour less than normal, 
you start to have cognitive uh, problems. Um, so your processing speed, your reaction time, your memory, things like this go down. But interestingly, people have no awareness of this. They have no insight in this. And so I knew this from the literature. And so we tested the police officers, uh, the high-risk officers and the, and the, the elite officers, the, you know, their co cognition, and we'd find out how much they slept before the tests, et cetera. And then we'd ask them, you know, how do you think you did? Because I test them every year. They say, well, I think I did just as good as last year. And um, I think my brain's functioning just as well. And if they haven't been sleeping well, their performance is actually reduced. So lack of sleep, we don't have the insight that our cognition is impaired when we have lack of sleep. So I think it's like having a one or two beers. People say, I don't feel drunk. I think I'm fine. I can drive. Right. But if you measure them, they are actually impaired. Uh, maybe not as impaired as they could be if they're completely drunk, but their reaction times are slow, et cetera. And these are enough to cause accidents. Yeah. I think the, the fascinating part is that once, once that happens, Mm -hmm. You don't really know whether you have the problem or not. Yeah. Because you don't have a baseline. Right. Exactly. Like if you're chronically being sleep deprived, you don't know what normal is. Just like they wouldn't know. Yeah. Uh, is, your, is your blood glucose high right now? Yeah. You don't know yeah. unless you have a measurement. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a little weird that a lot of uh, literature around blood glucose and also around diagnostics around blood glucose is built around that why do you need blood glucose mm -hmm. if you're not diabetic? And um, I mean, to some extent, the answer is that, yes, I mean, unless you, you know what your glucose levels are, how do you know that you're not diabetic? Mm -hmm. But I would love That's to point. extend yeah. this to the next level that a lot of people in there, so you start doing a lot of, um, you can say, craft tests on people, not to just look at their mm -hmm. glucose, but also their insulin. So when we go a level deeper, what, what started happening was that perfectly normal looking people, perfect, I, I know that BMI is not the right measure, but perfectly normal looking people, good BMI range, good body fat percentage, low visceral fat. Some mm. of those folks, when we looked at their glucose, good control, completely within the range, and didn't seem like there was a problem. But when we looked at their insulin via a form of a oral glucose tolerance test done across uh, three hours, sort of like a Dr. Kraft mm. test, the story was completely different. The story was that their insulin levels were almost like three to four X of where it should have been. And uh, what basically was happening was that mm. The glucose was rising and the body was overcompensating with more and more insulin. And because right. of extra insulin, the glucose would always look in the range. In fact, it would appear perfect. And um, for a lot of those people in their 20s and uh, some of them are athletes as well, it would seem like, oh, this is not a problem to solve because I, I don't mm. really have a glucose regulation problem. But the problem is that their insulin has become inefficient over the last few years. And uh, as they right. age, yeah. as they um, have more unregulated glucose, their insulin levels are going to rise further. And at one point in time, they can't really regulate their glucose. And when they sort of like realize this, it's already too late. Borderline uh, type 2 diabetes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's insulin resistance. Exactly. And this is the other issue that comes up, and, and you know more than I do on this, is the idea of using normative comparisons. Yeah. So, for example, it's like there's a reason why the standard American diet is called SAD. I, I don't think it's actually purposely called <laughs> SAD, but it's a SAD diet, you know? And so to say oh, your blood glucose or your theta beta ratio is about average, that is not necessarily a good thing yeah. um, because the society, our society is getting, uh, you know, less and less healthy in a lot of ways. I'll give you a quick example yeah. of the theta beta ratio. So when they did all this research on the theta beta ratio, it was like very, very accurate. 
to pick up ADHD. Normal people that didn't have ADHD don't show the theta-beta ratio, like it's like 2% or something. Um, what's happened though, newer studies, and I say this in one of my videos, I go over this, the newer studies are showing that it's not as discriminating between people who don't have ADHD and people who do have ADHD. And the reason is this, since the studies, the original studies were like 20 years ago, the, the internet and cell phones and exposure to blue light, everybody is staying up later and their circadian rhythm is more disrupted. And so people's sleep is not as good as it used to be. Yeah. And so what happens is people who don't have ADHD are showing a positive theta-beta ratio now that they didn't in the past. And if we just use a new normal, a new average, okay, for today, you actually, you're, you're the same as everyone else today when it comes to the theta-beta ratio. That doesn't tell me much because the whole society is getting sicker in terms of excess theta waves because of staying up later, getting exposure to blue light, et cetera. And so the biomarker has lost its sensitivity over time. But if you show positive on it, there's a very good chance you, you have ADHD. But if you score positive on it, there's a, you know you can easily not have ADHD as well. It could easily just be a sleep issue. Wow. Um, and so, so this is the other thing. Like when you look at norms, if you just use latest, the latest norms, is that, you know, a good thing or should there be ideal norms of the healthy, you know, it's like right. in neuropsychology, when I do testing of memory and processing speed, we have to use a normative data for their age category because let's say memory for a 55 year old, uh, an average memory is a lot worse than a memory of a 25 year old. And so if I use 25-year-old norms, pretty much most people, like 90% of people who are over 50 are going to look severely impaired. Right. One of the issues that comes up, I haven't done this in a while. I used to do a lot more of this. I would be asked to do evaluations of physicians of their safety to continue to work because in Canada, at least where we are now, there's no mandatory retirement age. Right. And uh, the question is, if I use younger norms, uh, they're going to look quite impaired. But uh, like, should a, should a, uh, a, a brain surgeon who's 70 years old, um, is it okay for his brain and his processing speed and his memory and his reaction time to be the same as a seven-year-old? Or do you want their, you know, they need to be what we call a super ager, which is their brains are actually functioning like a 50-year-old or something like this. So it's the norms are what we compare it to, I think is, is important to think about. This is really interesting insight because as the averages around us are actually changing because of uh, what's happening in the society and in the in mm -hmm. our lifestyle, in our habits all around. And the biomarkers you mentioned, uh, very, very simple ones as well that we see here. Like, for example, the, the triglyceride biomarker or the LDL biomarker. Mm, right. it's, it's designed for somebody else, totally different context. And it's not designed for whether you have inflammation in the body or not. It's it's not designed for that. It's designed for, for that individual of people, like group of people who were studied, what was the risk percentage and... Uh, if you're trying to optimize for health performance, some of those uh, benchmarks might actually not even matter because in this case, you might need to like be alarmed much, much, much earlier if your triglycerides uh, mm -hmm. are on the higher side or especially like, for example, things like LDL, uh, the lipoprotein A versus lipoprotein B, like totally different type of uh, behavior. So totally resonate yeah. with what you just said. It's, it's uh, I think it's super, what I feel is that the verticalization of the performance domain has actually happened, right? And would love to mm. learn more about Friesen Sports and Performance Psychology Center that you have been working with on. But before that, like I think one comment I wanted to make was that this vert like, verticalization has actually happened. This, this new domain has actually been created. But I think mm -hmm. more of that has been made available to athletes and uh, uh, it's not as accessible totally today. 
as we mm-hmm. build companies in this space i think people like you who actually are leading this space get this out to millions of people this will become available to not just athletes but also everyone who actually wants to look and feel better so with that i would love to know more about your the the freezing sports and performance psychology center that what are some of the key goals or key objectives uh, that you have been working on with that 